Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Have you ever wanted more in life? In other words, have you ever wanted more to life than what you are currently living for and what you currently have? We live in a world that thrives on wanting and gaining more. Even though in recent years the desire for more has shifted away from finances, that doesn't mean that the world is becoming more satisfied. That just means that what they desire, what they want, more of something else is different than finances. It's more vacations or more trips or more quality time or more love or more fill in the blank. Marketing has done a phenomenal job in convincing you and I as consumers to buy things that we think we need when we really don't. This actually stems all the way back in the 1920s. Um, I don't think anyone in here was alive during the Great Depression, uh, but some of you know parents and grandparents that were. And so we understand that according to history, the government was not in a great shape. The economy was in a terrible shape, and marketers and business executives understood that if they were going to survive in their business, they had to sell more products. And they were trying to convince a government or or a group of people that had no money to buy their products, and that was a tough feat. And so history tells us that these business executives got together and they came up with this marketing plan to convince us to buy things that we think we need that we really don't. And they have done a phenomenal job over the years of still continuing to do so. For example, many of you have phones with internet. Well, you bought that and some of you use it for your business, but most of us Especially young people believe that if they did not have a phone and internet, they would not be able to survive. Marketing has done a phenomenal job in convincing us that that's the case. Uh, Some of us have internet, and I understand that many of you work from home and you need internet in order to work, and that's a totally different thing. But in all reality, most of us do not need internet in order to survive, but we've been convinced to believe that we do. And you can go on and on with multiple different things that we see, that we think we believe that we need, and we really don't. Uh, When I was in college, we'll go to the next slide there, Stephen. When I was in college, I had a sweet vehicle, uh, just as every single college student did. And actually, before this one, it actually was a Mercury Sable. Many of you know what a Mercury Sable is. I don't even know if they make those anymore, but many of you know are familiar with those vehicles. And the Mercury Sable that was given to me was given to me by one of my youth leaders named Ray Clifford. And uh, the reason why he gave it to me was it worked kind of. It had, a, it had a head gasket issue that was kind of limping along, and it was only a matter of time before it would bite the dust. And he didn't have to give it to me. He could have sold it, but he knew that I needed a car, and so he gave it to me. And um, it worked great for about a year until eventually one year I was traveling down with another person from my church, and I was on Interstate 77. I just got on the interstate, and I was north of Charlotte, and I'm driving, I'm hitting the gas, and then all of a sudden the gas pedal stopped working. And the car broke down, and we pulled it to the side of the road. Triple A came and towed that car, and to this day, I believe it's still sitting at the same garage like 12 years ago, or however long it was. And so after that was over with, I still needed a car to get back and forth to college. I had a job down there, so I needed a car, to, you know, at least something to get me from point A to point B. And so I had the distinct privilege of inheriting my family's Dodge Grand Caravan. It looked very similar to this, other than the fact that the bumper was the same color as the van. Other than that, everything else looked similar. It had the gold hubcaps, and that was the very definition of a hot car. Um, I remember when I had that vehicle, it, 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 it would just 
like lock and unlock automatically. It looked like it was, it acted like it was demon possessed. I'd be down the road and it would be like click, 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 click. And then we would start the car up and then we would turn on the air conditioning. I'm not exaggerating. A whole like swarm of just dead bug bodies would fly out of the air conditioning unit. And so I had that all throughout college. Um, I landed my, my wife with that sweet vehicle and so it was good to me. And then I got hired while I was a senior in, in, in college to work for a company in Pennsylvania. It was a software company. I was hired to become a trainer, an executive, uh, well, not an executive, probably someday, right? But in a trainer to the executive level of people that we would sell the products to. And so I went over there and I, I, uh, I got hired and I was driving that van back and forth. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, like $38,000 starting salary was massive to a person that was fresh out of college back all the way in 2010. I mean, it's okay amount of money now, but to me, I, like, I thought I had won the lottery. And so I deserved a new car. Well, did you know that when you graduate and have no credit to your name, that banks will not give you a loan, even though you have a salary and can tell them this is how much money I'm getting paid? They don't take your word for it. So I could not go. I didn't have any money in savings, and so I could not go buy a car. And so several months, I'm driving back and forth as this cool new hiree in that gangster minivan. And it was cool until it would break down every once in a while, and my mom had to come pick me up from work. How ridiculous was that when your mom shows up and you had to get in the van and all your boys that you're like trying to impress, like walking out and you get in a minivan with your mom's other minivan. And so I remember trying to convince my dad in a very spiritual, um, business-like mind to co-sign a loan for me to get my first car. And any of you that know anything about finance knows that co-signing is not the smartest idea to do. And I wasn't in dire straits, although I thought I was. And so my dad wasn't going to co-sign the loan. So I'm outside, and I'm frustrated at this point with God for not giving me a car that I thought I needed, with my dad for not co-signing the loan and having the extreme business sense that I had in doing so. And uh, I just said to my dad, I said, Dad, why won't God provide for my needs? And I remember my dad sitting there looking at me. He said, Brandon, is a new car that you are praying for while you still have a car that works for the most part sitting in the driveway, something that you truly need, or is it something that you really want? And that was the first time that I ever, well, I guess just to say, that's the first time that I began the journey of deciphering between what I truly need and what I want. This morning through these, these passages here, we are going to endeavor a very difficult passage in which the Lord defines for us that which we truly need versus that which we think we need that we actually are just wants and have desires for. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 6. As we continue to unpack the truths here this morning, contained within the Sermon of the Mount, our hearts have been challenged. They have been ripped apart over these convicting and revolutionary words of Jesus. And through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus delivers for us the kingdom principles, the kingdom citizens for kingdom living. We understand that that was the theme through everything. Jesus takes everything that people had been taught regarding the law and he challenges our thinking by forcing us to go deeper, by forcing us to move from the external keeping of the law to the internal aspects of our heart. Uh, you know, how, how we believe we ought to behave when it comes to adultery, when it comes to murder and all of those other things, Jesus Christ just drives down to the heart to help us understand that the very thought of those things is the same as committing them as far as the eyes of God go. 
In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has been focusing on the desires behind our actions. He's been digging a little bit deeper. As we've seen so far in verses 1 through 4, Jesus urges man to bring God glory alone through his acts of righteousness and through his almsgiving and making sure that we don't give to God for the glory of man, but solely for the glory of God. He says in verses 5 through 8 that Jesus urging us to bring God glory alone when we pray in verses 9 through 15, defining for us how we ought to pray and giving us that template known as the Lord's Prayer and how in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is pushing mankind to a new way of thinking when it comes to the Lord's Prayer. God, my prayer is not about me. It's all about you. Jesus says that when we pray, we must recognize the transcendence and holiness of God. We must submit to his will and his will alone. We must depend upon God to provide for our needs daily when it comes to our function within his kingdom. We must confess our sins as we forgive others in seeking God's forgiveness. And we must beg for God's guidance and protection as Satan, as we understand, continuously over and over again tries to get us off track. That's the temple of the Lord's Prayer. But after delivering the Lord's Prayer, Jesus continues to chip away at man's heart by furthering developing the difference between what truly God brings, uh, what truly brings God glory and what does not. And just now, Jesus now reaches even deeper into our lives by now touching our possessions, which many of us hold on so tightly. And it's like right when I thought that I, I really didn't want to preach a passage, the Lord brings up another passage that I really don't want to preach. And this is one of those here this morning. We're going to be focusing on verses 16 through 24 in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus continues this theme of bringing God glory alone by focusing now our attention on fasting and our focus. Fasting and our focus. Truthfully, both seem like on similar topics, but really they go in hand in hand. For example, when we fast, what are we typically fasting over? We're fasting over a specific need that we're asking God to meet. And sometimes they're not really needs. They're just desires that we have that we believe is a need. And so we fast over it. And so Jesus starts by defining what fasting uh, really is and really the proper practice of it. And then he, he continues to develop what we believe our needs and what we want by helping us readjust our focus to the cause of Christ and Christ alone. So as we continue on this morning, the title of our message is this, For the Glory of God Alone, Part 3, Fasting and Focus. Jesus continues uh, by focusing on a common practice that not only was common among the religious leaders, but were common among the Jewish worshipers itself, and that was fasting. And when we typically think of fasting, we think of refraining from food or drink. And generally, the biblical form of fasting is the restraint of food or drink, but it can mean something else. It's not just limited to that form. As John Piper describes, he says, Fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that in itself is good, like food, in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and His work in our lives. Fasting is telling our flesh no to something that we think it needs in order for our spirit to draw closer to God. Fasting was common within the Jewish culture, but unfortunately, just like many of the other things, it was oftentimes misunderstood. Just like prayer and just like the works of righteousness, fasting was a means of bringing glory to themselves rather than a communion directly with God. And so with that understanding in place, let's jump into this first point this morning, and that is this subject of fasting. I say, Pastor Brandon, why should I fast as a Christian? 
Some of you in this room may be fasting at this time. Some of you have never fasted, and you may ask yourself, why? Like, what's the point of fasting? Why do we do it as Christians? Fasting is a spiritually healthy practice that resists the things that we need and our body craves in order to crave more of God or to demonstrate before God how strong our need is and our dependence upon Him. It usually takes place when we're faced with a big decision or when we are involved in something in which we so desperately need the grace and wisdom and guidance of God in our lives. And so when it comes to fasting, what Jesus does is he gives us two principles of how we ought to do so. First of all, we have to understand that our fasting must be personal. Personal. Jesus says in verses 16 through 18, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, that they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What Jesus is literally saying here is that when you are involved in fasting, wash your face, do whatever you need to do to make sure that your fasting is personal between you and God and not to demonstrate before others the fact that you are fasting. See, those that were religious leaders and those who were participants in fasting would make a big deal about it. They would go around and they would, they would act like they were dying as far as not having a nutrients. And they would, as the Bible says, they would wear it on their face as if they were struggling. Oh, I'm fasting. I'm just fasting in God for this decision. And they would make a big deal about it. When in reality, Jesus says, no one should know that you're fasting. And you certainly shouldn't walk around making it appear that you're fasting. Now, I know, understand that there are times in which you may be fasting and somebody has invited you out to dinner and you say, you know what, I'm going to pass on that. I'm fasting. It's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about going around and trying to get some sort of credit from other people that you are drawing yourself closer to God. There's another thing that people do, and they still do it today, and and taking this to an extreme. Uh, It's quite some time ago I was asked by people, why don't you as a church officially practice Lent like the Catholic Church does? And here's the reason as to why we do not. I'm not saying that you practicing Lent or fasting for a period of time is wrong. It's between you and God. But the practice behind it is where it becomes confusing. See, the Catholic Church, and other religions for that matter, view Lent as actually being a good works. There's two things within Lent that they fall into, asceticism and monasticism. Asceticism basically is the view that the more the more you hurt yourself, the more you neglect your body, you're becoming more identified with Christ, and so therefore Christ is going to give you more favor because of more pain that you're putting your body through. Monasticism is the same thing. It's neglecting yourself of certain goods in order to gain more favor with God. That's not fasting, okay? The Bible literally says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, that God has richly blessed us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, God desires that you have an enjoyable life. And so flogging yourself, as what some cultures do, whipping yourself, nailing yourself to a cross, to the brink of death, which some cultures practice, is not biblical in any means. That's not fasting. Fasting is neglecting your body of certain things like food. Some people do a fasting over media, whatever the case may be, in order to tune your heart into God, but that is a personal communion that you have between you and God. Another aspect is the word private. 
Okay, here's another aspect of fasting. Not only is it personal, it is private. The Bible says in verse 18 that when you uh, fast, do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in secret. Once again, Jesus is urging us to take great measures and being discreet when it comes to our fasting. See, the temptation here is to fast for the praise of man. And when we're doing so, we can enter into the realm of works. Fasting is not a means of salvation or a purpose to gain merit with God. It is a time of deep communion. But here's another danger that we face when we are fasting and we are telling other people that we are fasting and the reason as to why we are fasting. It can, it can muddy up the leading of God. For example... Let's say that you have a face, you're facing a big decision right now and, and, and you're fasting with God for a period of however you set it up for a few days, a week, whatever the case may be, over that particular decision. And you're keeping that private between you and God and you're seeking his leading through that. If you now take this to other spiritual people, to other friends, and you're telling them why you are fasting, what can happen is the conversation between you and another friend, if you're not ready and you believe you haven't heard from God yet, can cause that friend in their goodness of their heart to give you advice that may not be specifically what God is telling you to do yet. And so you may believe that that is a leading from God. And of course, you, we understand God's sovereignty and his will will not be overthrown. But what can happen is you can become confused because of the advice that someone else is giving. Okay, I'm not saying that you don't get counsel. You do get counsel. But I do urge you to take a period of time in your fasting and have a communion between you and God alone and not tell anyone else about that and listen and wait to see how God is leading. Now, if you believe that God is leading you in a certain way, then you can go and you can give that to someone else that is in a spiritual um, capacity to be able to give you wisdom. But what Jesus says here is that make it personal and make it private. There needs to be periods of time in your fasting where it's between you and God alone, seeking his face. Not doing it for good works, not doing it for a merit of grace, but simply doing it to drive your communion with God in a deeper way. So that is fasting. Okay? Maybe, you've, maybe you're fasting right now. Keep it personal, keep it private. But maybe you're fasting for a decision that you believe is a need when, rea when, when in reality it is not. And so what Jesus does in these next section of verses is he readjusts our focus. So this brings us to our second point, and that's focus. Jesus continues in verses 19 through 24, and many of you are extremely familiar with these verses, and so follow along with me. It's there on the screen as well. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, or moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, and your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is in darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The danger with these verses, as with many verses in the Scripture, is that we are extremely familiar with these verses. We hear them over and over and over again, and we can run into the, the problem of letting it go in one ear and out the other. And so as, as your pastor, and literally as I was studying through this this week, and I was struggling with something, I was reading the notes that I wrote down, and it was as if the Holy Spirit 
slap me in the face. <laughs> you ever been there? You write down notes of like, like, you, you, like you didn't think about it before, but then you're like going through this and you're like, wow, okay, where was that earlier this week? I'm convicted over this. I wouldn't have included it in my notes because I don't want to be convicted over it again. Like you've been there before, right? So I'm, I'm here with you. And so what Jesus does is he gives us three different truths when it comes to adjusting our focus. The first thing that he tells us to do is this. Forego the temporary. Forego the temporary. Look at verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. If you were to back up to the second point here, notice that I did not use the word fortune to describe this point here. Because Jesus is not talking about fortune specifically. I did not use the word material to describe this second point because this section has nothing to do with how much or how little assets we have. The sum point of all of what Jesus is describing here comes down to our focus. What has your heart? Is it the temporary? Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In the first century, the reason why he's using these words here is that wealth was not accumulated in bank accounts like it is today, but in cash of precious metals and clothes, which is why things would rust and therefore would become no longer valuable. Talking about precious metals. Then you would have the moths that would come through and they would eat through the clothing. And we understand that uh, we see uh, Dorcas, the, the seller of purple, and others, they were very rich, and Lydia and all of them, they were very rich because of the materials that they sold. Moths would come through and eat that, making it worthless. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures that are only going to corrupt and decay. The best way to define what Jesus is intending here is to completely detach yourself from the dependence upon earthly goods. In in other words, you have to ask yourself this. If every single physical thing was stripped away from you and taken away from you, you lost your job, you lost your bank account, you lost your pension, how would you be spiritually? Would your view of God change? Would your serving of God change? If it would, then that means your treasure was in earthly goods. Pastor Brandon, you're speaking a little rough. Do you realize what I've been through? I'm not making light of any trial that you've ever faced. But I want you to think about that. If everything was taken away from you and you had nothing other than the clothes on your back and the promise that God would provide for your basic needs of your food, Would it change your view of God? Our churches today are filled with people that go to church when their life is clicking along great. Or they go to church when their life is terrible because they want God to redeem them and give them back what they lost. But the moment that changes, what happens? They stop coming. They stop checking in. They stop serving. They stop praying. When it just shows us all along that their heart was in developing something in the temporary. I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest in retirement that is financially responsible to do. But I am saying that if you are working for a company when you know that God is calling you to do something else but you don't want to leave the company because of the pension plan, check your heart. I'm not saying make unwise decisions, but I am saying to check your fears. And if your fears are in the fact that you may not have what you currently have, then your heart may be not forgoing the temporary, but investing in the temporary. 
Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What Jesus is urging us to do is strip away everything that we don't need for the cause of Christ because all of it can be utterly and completely distracting. Sometimes God allows trials, as, as what Rachel was just saying earlier, to come into our life to force us to focus on the eternal. And there's nothing more humbling than something out of our control, removing what we believe was in our control. God is out of our control, and he removes what we thought was in our control, our finances, our health, whatever the case is. There's nothing more humbling than that taking place. And we're left with, man, I couldn't, I couldn't hold on to this. Okay, God. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. But sometimes our treasures just simply aren't in the material. Sometimes they're in relationships. Now, I, I want you to hear my heart in this. I love my wife more than anything other than Jesus Christ. But if God was to take away a relationship that you so desperately love, how would you respond to God? Would you hate Him? Would you become bitter with Him? Would you become upset with Him? If that is the case, then your heart was investing in the temporal, and that being the relationship. A few moments ago, Garth had no idea. I actually didn't have any idea until I wrote this message that we would sing, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford was the author of that hymn. This hymn was written by uh, him back in the 1800s. Spafford was a successful attorney. He was a real estate investor who lost a fortune in the great Chicago fire in 1871. Around the same time, his beloved four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Thinking a vacation would do his family some good, he sent his wife and four daughters on a ship to England. And we can go to that picture there. He was planning to join them, but some pressing business at home made him stay back. On his way over there, or on their way over there, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship was involved in a terrible collision and it sunk. More than 200 people lost their lives, including all four of Horatio Spafford's precious daughters. All four kids. Five, in reality, were taken to heaven. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy, and upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that began, Save alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England, and at one point during his voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck the Spafford family, summoned Horatio to tell him that they were now passing over the very spot where that shipwreck occurred and his four children perished and went into eternity. As Horatio thought about his daughter's words of comfort and hope filled his heart, in his mind, here's a successful businessman who had more than he needed, that was lost in the Chicago fire, and now his family was lost other than his wife. He could have become very bitter with God. He looked over that area where his, his, his children went to heaven. His heart was filled with love, and there he wrote the words to that song. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that was taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. If we are too busy investing in the temporary, then our life is going to be ruined when we lose what we are investing in. But if we're investing in the eternal, will we experience pain? Of course, we're human. 
Jesus experienced pain. We're going to cry, of course. But we're going to respond a whole lot differently because our investment wasn't in that. Paul says this, I love these verses. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Now, not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus says we must forego the temporary, but secondly, what we must do in response to that is focus on the eternal. Jesus says in verses 20 through 21, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is urging us to invest in eternity and our treasure reveals where our heart stands, the temporary or the eternal. So Pastor Brandon, what does this mean on a practical level? Jesus says that our heart truly belongs to what it most treasures. And since the disciple is to love God with all of his heart, love for material possessions and riches is a subtle form of idolatry. It is not wrong to be rich. It is not wrong to center your life around, um, it, it is wrong to center your life around becoming rich. If God blesses you through your hard work and discipline, then praise God. But demonstrate before God how much you love him by making him a priority through your time, your treasure, and your talents. Jesus urges us to take drastic measures to strip away everything that would distract us for the cause of Christ. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail when no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Okay, that sounds difficult. But the key to that type of radical living is found in the previous verse. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, It says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to what? Give you the kingdom. So why are we filling our stomachs with junk food when the Lord has provided for us filet mignon? I can tell you the reason why. Because we can see it. We can touch it. We can see materialism. We can experience immediate gratification. Why do you think social media is such the rage right now with gaining wealth? Because it's it's something we want to see, something we want to have happen quick. Why it's so difficult to invest in the kingdom is because we can't see it yet. It's why the Bible talks about so often to walk in faith. Because the good things are to come in the future, not now. But don't focus on the temporary now. Focus on the eternal. Here's the problem with materialism and wealth. It consumes us if we're not careful. For example, I'm not saying a bicycle is materialistic. There's some of you that that's how you literally get from point A to point B. But let's just think about it from a bicycle standpoint. Something as simple as that. You don't just buy a bicycle and then forget about it. You have to maintain the bicycle. You have to change the, 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 the chain when it breaks. You have to fix the tire when the tire goes flat. It takes time. It takes energy. Okay? It's something that we are responsible to do. Multiply that by like a million when it comes to your wealth. The problem with wealth, if we're not careful, is that it can become consuming. So we take another job on a Sunday morning to be able to feed the beast, so to speak. Ah, Pastor Brennan, i got to work. And I understand those times happen. But do you really? 
Are you going to lose your job if you tell your boss, no, I have church on Sunday morning, I need to be there? Pastor Brandon, you have no idea the financial strain that I'm in right now. I cannot give to the Lord through my finances. So I need to be able to pay a bill. Do you really? Because when you give to God in your finances, you're demonstrating before God a level of trust that, God, you've got this, I don't. But when you refuse to give God through your finances, you're telling God, God, I got this, even though you're you know, powerful and I'm going to say you are, I really don't believe you are because I need your money to be able to pay my phone bill. There's a level of responsibility that all of us must have, but nowhere in Scripture do you ever see a time in where it says that you need to rob God in order to pay what you believe you think you need. See, see, giving to God, and I think I've so often have failed to express this, giving to God is not paying the bills for the church. Giving to God is showing to God, God, you have number one priority in my life. You deserve my worship. And so I'm going to give to you rather than spend $3,000 on a new lawnmower. I'm going to give to you when I'm not giving to you at all. See, this is where Jesus is driving home, and he really brings it home at the end of this chapter. Now, I understand that giving is not the only realm that he is talking about here, but giving is a tremendous way where we demonstrate before God where our heart truly is. If you look at statistics across the board, if you look at Christianity across the board, you can see like, it's one thing to go to church. Like, that's cool. I'm going to keep my friends. And, you know, it's a good thing to, like, serve in a ministry. That's great. But if you're failing to give to God in a financial means, it says a lot about your heart and what you truly think about God. Because that's, your pocketbook is where your heart is going to be hit. It's a demonstration of your heart. It's literally why Jesus says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so a way that we focus on the eternal is not only through our financial giving, it is through our time, it is through our sacrifice. If we're, if we're making every excuse in the world to not be at church on Sunday, it demonstrates something about our heart. Now, obviously, I'm speaking to the choir because you're here. But if you're making every excuse in the world to, to, to forego an opportunity that you can invest for eternity, it demonstrates a lot about your heart. But here's the final point here. How do we keep this going? Feed the spiritual. You forsake the, or forego the temporary, you, fee, uh, you, you focus on the eternal, and then finally you feed the spiritual. Look at verses 22 and 24, through 24. Jesus says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad and your whole body will be full of darkness, if therefore the light is, it is in you is in darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In Jewish writings, a good eye represented a generous attitude and a bad eye a stingy attitude. The bad eye was this improper perspective on wealth. It results in great eternal darkness. It's a moral blindness that diminishes the ability to see and pursue that which is good. The very definition of money and wealth is a corruption of the heart. The Bible says the eye is the lamp of the body. And in that sense, we have to see that we, where we are going, our feet, as it were, share the light of the eye. And if your eyes are bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And if you have a bad eyesight, your eyes do not see where you're going, so the body will stumble and fall. The body that lives in darkness 
due to the eyes being dark, is a body that will fall. And if the light that is within you is darkness, Jesus says, how great is that darkness? But if our spiritual eyes is fixed on the eternal, then our whole body will follow suit. It's really revealing what is going on in our hearts. In verses 19 through 24, Jesus is building upon this truth by calling us to adjust our focus in three different areas. He's saying, forgo the temporary. And so I would urge you this morning, what is holding you back from being all in with God? What is holding you back from taking that next step of faith? Is it so that your finances will be in order? Again, yes, you've got to be responsible. Okay, that's between you and God. But if you're allowing the thought that God may not provide for you, and you may not outright say that, but you're demonstrating that in your lack of faith, then you are focusing on the temporary rather than the eternal. So I would urge you this morning, what's holding you back? Maybe, maybe you are feeding the spiritual right now. I would urge you this morning is to keep your focus on the eternal. Keep your focus on God. Don't, you th- don't think that Satan's not going to try to get you to get off focus. He knows exactly what tempts you and what tempts me. He knows exactly the carrot to dangle in front of you to keep you walking in that direction. So don't you, don't you think that you got it all figured out and Satan's just done with you. If Satan tempted Jesus, he for sure is going to come after you. Keep your eyes focused on the eternal. You never know the impact of what our life would be if we are just one degree off when it comes to our focus. There's a, an illustration, an example, a true story for that matter, given on October 31st of 1983, Korean Airlines Flight 007 departed from Anchorage, Alaska for a direct flight to Seoul, South Korea. Unknown to the crew, however, the computer engaging the flight navigation system contained a one and a half degree routing error. At the point of departure, the mistake was unnoticeable. 100 miles out, it wasn't a big deal. Just like when we we're a little bit of off with God, it's not a huge deal. But the deviation was still so small that it was undetectable. But as the giant 747 continued to cross the Aleutian Islands out over the Pacific, the plane increasingly strayed from its proper course. Eventually, it was flying over the Soviet airspace. And the Russian radar picked up the air. The flight jet scrambled to intercept Flight 007. And a short time later, the jet was shot out of the sky over mainland Russia. And the lives of everyone on board was lost, all because of a one and a half degree routing error. Your, your life right now may be one and a half degrees off. Like you're, you're in church, like you're somewhat with God, you're somewhat following God, but yet the world still has your heart in some degree. You're a little off. You don't get it right with God. Your life may be in further shambles 15, 20, 30 years down the road. I would much rather be poor from a material standpoint, but yet my life is in tune with God than to have all the wealth in the world and I have no time for God. Because again, when we die, we take just as much out of this world as we brought into the world. Nothing. So invest for eternity. I want to close once again with this same verse that I read a few moments ago. Paul says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is your focus?